0: The children are dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. And not sure where that is. Start in Matthew, go back two books. The insert is in the bulletin. And we are going to study and read, and God willing, get through all of chapter 2. All of chapter 2, as it's one vision. While you're turning there, I just want to remind you... That this book is set in a context. The book starts with a date, chapter 1, verse 1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. And then it jumps forward to another date. This is Israel returned from captivity, a meager 50,000 Israelites inhabiting Jerusalem, trying to rebuild the temple, the walls, being opposed by um, their enemies, discouraged, and they gave up, they stopped. And a few years after they gave up, God sent Haggai to them to call them to repentance to rebuild. Then he sent Zechariah with a word of repentance, and they listened and they, they repented and they began rebuilding. And then the rest of this book is God pouring out blessings, promising, encouraging his people. And so the book's divided into three sections. And the first section that we're in now, chapters one through six, are eight night visions. And one night, the Lord gives Zechariah eight visions to encourage the people, eight visions to encourage Israel. And it's a mixture of of different things. Today, we're going to see some of the previous threads draw together. But the overwhelming tenor of these eight visions can be seen in chapter 1, in verse 12 and 13. If you remember in chapter 1, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, Cries out in intercession to the living God, and he says, How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you've been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words. And I think that's a great summary of the rest of the book gracious and comforting words. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And so in the first vision, we see this sort of covert reconnaissance report. Preparation for, for a military conquest is, is the context. As riders who've gone out to spy out the other kingdoms give their word back to the commander of the Lord's army, the angel of the Lord, the rider on the red horse. And the Lord announces he is angry with the nations who are at ease and he has returned to Jerusalem. And then, then the second vision um, of the, the horns. And the craftsman, he picks up the theme of his anger at the nations. And we identified four successive nations who would oppress Israel, who would scatter and terrify them, who would lift up their horns in pride. And the Lord was raising up other nations, other leaders to knock them down, that there would be a recompense for those who would oppress God's people. This goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Well, now in this third vision, um, the vision of the man with the measuring line. Chapter 2 takes up the entire vision. We're going to see a little bit of both of these seams together. So let's read Zechariah chapter 2. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. Behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they will become a plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling a lot going on here and yet it's one cohesive vision one prophecy one word to Zechariah and to the people and so we're going to dive in here looking at it the division falls into two sections but you may notice the little box at the top of your um, insert with hard to read and pronounce words And before we dive into this, I've got to sort of do a brief little aside. And the reason for that is when it comes to interpreting biblical prophecy, and in particular, biblical prophecy given to Israel, there are two major camps within conservative, um, God-honoring, evangelical Christianity. And you need to be aware of that. This isn't going to be a full exposition of all the groups and all the positions, but you need to be aware at least there are at least two major approaches. And I've spelled out their technical names because some of you might be reading books that mention this, but there won't be a quiz afterwards. You don't need to know them. What you need to understand is, is what they mean. So there is dispensational premillennialism. Now that's a big mouthful. That'd be the position of this church. That's what's written into our doctrinal statement. And all that means, for all that big complicated word, dispensational premillennialism, is we believe that the Bible teaches that God has a future earthly plan for ethnic Israel. God has a future earthly plan for ethnic Israel. That's all you got to walk away with. So this one group thinks God has a future plan for ethnic Israel, okay? The second group, covenantal amillennialism, and again, the names, if you're, if you've interacted with them, they might be useful. I, I don't care if you remember these names. Believes that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan, or, if not fully replaced, that the church has inherited Israel's blessings. The practical outflow of this is that for people who, in this camp, all millennialism, covenantalism, or there's different names, when we read passages like Zechariah chapter 2, their belief is that Israel, in rejecting their Messiah, was finally and firmly cast off by the Lord. And let's face it, there is some language in Matthew that can, they, they don't just make this up. When Jesus says to to the leaders, the Pharisees, your house is left desolate, I will take the kingdom of God and give it to a nation bearing its fruit, these people believe that that is the final and absolute and not coming back from rejection of Israel. That Israel had then crossed a line too far. And that God had taken all his promises to Israel and he'd given them to the church and Israel is welcome to join the church, Israel is welcome to become Christians, but that is the end of any Fixed earthly plan for Israel. That would be that group. Good, godly men who I read their books and I appreciate and will see in heaven hold that position. In the worldwide church, that's probably the majority position. And so those are the two groups. And I want to make it clear because you may read other books or talk to people and you're excited about what we're seeing and hear about Israel's future. And you may have Christian friends who that, they just look at you with a sort of 10,000-yard stare. What? That, that's Why? So that, that's, that's the intro, just in those two groups, and understand we believe it's written into our Constitution, our statement of faith, and what I'll be teaching, what has been taught in this pulpit for over 30 years, is the belief that the, the Bible does teach that God's not done with Israel. And I think even in this passage today, we'll see why. But I, wanna, I want to just make one point, and, and this is a big issue, and so I don't expect, but please don't understand me as saying that I have made. This is not a silver bullet, but one point. Turn to Jeremiah 31. I just want to show you the text that settled it for me. I'm sitting in seminary. I'm reading a lot of these Reformed guys. In many sense, I am a great fan of the Reformation. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of the recovery of the gospel. I'm a big fan of a high view of scripture. I'm a big fan of an emphasis in the sovereignty of God. And so I was honestly in seminary as I'm going through this, working through this issue, thinking, man, I... I may come down the other side. Who knows? And I remember, I can remember sitting in class in Keith Essex Old Testament survey class reading Jeremiah 31 and just, for me at least, that was game, set, match. Now this is the chapter where the famous promise of the new covenant is found. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The one that Hebrews chapter 8 quotes extensively. And I want to read that passage which I'm sure will be very familiar to you and then I want to keep reading. Okay? So, Jeremiah 31, and in the flow of Jeremiah, and we're going to sort of skip through the beginning of chapter 31 and then land on the new covenant passage. Jeremiah has been announcing, if you remember, that, that God is going to send Israel into captivity. He, he actually told Israel, don't, don't try to fight Nebuchadnezzar. You will lose. God has given you into his hands. And um, this, this thing keeps bouncing around in my ear, but we'll see if we can get it to stay. Okay. And so in chapter 31 now, a promise of restoration begins. So the first 30 chapters of Jeremiah are you're going to fail. You're going to be given over. You're going to be taken off the land. You've gone too far. You're not going to succeed. Don't try to resist. But starting at 31, just read verse 1. At that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. They shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. Which is to say that there's a lot of people who are going to die when Nebuchadnezzar takes over, but there are people, people who survive. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. That looks promising. Jump down to verse 8. Behold, I'll bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth and, ag- and among them the, the, lame, bl- the blind and the lame and the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company shall return here. With weeping they shall come and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. Now, I want you to jump down. So that's the context. You're gonna be scattered, but I'm gonna bring you back. You're gonna be d- scattered among the nations, but I'm gonna bring you home. Verse twenty-seven. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beasts, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, break down, to overthrow and destroy. And you can go back and compare that with verse chapter one, verse ten, where that's Jeremiah's commission. The Lord said, I've sent you to do those things. He was going to first have a ministry of tearing down, you're going to fail, but then ultimately building back up. To pluck up, break down, overthrow, and destroy. I will wash over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And then here's the passage. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This is the covenant that Jesus is speaking of when he at the Last Supper says this, this cup is the cup of the blood of the the new covenant purchased by my blood, okay? Hebrews 8 is devoted to unpacking this. Keep reading. So, so, to summarize, I'm going to bring you back, Israel. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to regather you. I'm going to lead you home. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And it says, if the writer expects there might be questions now, well, what does this mean for Israel? Just keep reading. I'll forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas so that it roars, its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord. Then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they've done, declares the Lord. The Lord announces a new covenant and then says, make no mistake though, in no way does this mean I'm done with you. I will not in the blank here. The Lord will never cast off Israel. The Lord will never cast off Israel. He announces a new covenant, and then as if anticipating the question, this doesn't change anything. I will not forsake you. I will not abandon you. I will not cast you off for your sins. And I remember reading that and just, okay. This, this anticipates that we might think that he would. And he says, nope, I'm not going to. Okay then. And you can compare the, the similar New Testament, New Covenant passage that I reference in, uh, in Ezekiel there, which says the same thing. Anyway, by no means have I settled the issue. That's the text that settled it for me, but for this and many reasons we think this. We, we'll probably hit this topic piece by piece again in the future, but just so that you know, there are two major groups, as we turn back to Zechariah. Those who do believe that God has a distinct earthly plan for, for Israel, and those who believe that all those passages applied to the church. But the reason why this matters is you're going to read your Bible very differently. And in particular, you're going to read Zechariah chapter 2 very differently. Because I would submit to you that if if you think the text means what it says, and it's pretty straightforward, it's not that complicated. I'll I'll summarize Zechariah 2, the the vision of the man with the measuring line. Zechariah sees a man with a measuring line. He asks, what are you about to do? I'm I'm measuring Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's going to expand. It's going to overflow in prosperity. Wonderful hey, everybody, come on back to Israel because God's going to you know, fix the wagon of the nations and he's going to bless us. Come on back, come on back. That, that's pretty much it. It's not that complicated. And we're going to go verse by verse. It's rich, it's deep, but, but that's the message. But if you don't believe that, that's what's going on, then you've got to come up with somehow this applies to the church. And I was, I was reading, and I, and I have a number of commentaries I read, and just to show you how this becomes problematic, and then I promise we'll move on is if you don't take this at face value, and there's an old Bible interpretation proverb, if the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense, lest you yield nonsense. The plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense, lest you yield nonsense. Reading an excellent commentary, I've enjoyed it, and I get to this passage, and because this has to be applied to the church, well, what do you do with it? Well, this is what they did with it. Um, I'll paraphrase it, but basically the commentator said, The question for the church is whether or not we will measure ourselves by man's standards or God's. God lays out here that he is the one that measures the church. He's the one that measures his people. And it's that measurement alone that we should look to. Now, that's all true. That's all good. That just seems really strange to get from here. But that's what you got to do. You got to come up with something creative. And as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, well, that's good. But why not something like this? It is the Lord who measures the length and breadth of our life, and we are unable by our own willpower, Jesus says, or strength to add a hair to our head or an hour to our life. This is a reminder of the the shortness of life, the vanity of our thinking that we're powerful, and a reminder that it's the Lord who sets our measurements. It's the Lord who gives us our allotted times and spaces. That's equally true. The problem you run into with these prophecies is if you don't take them to mean what they clearly mean, you can really go anywhere with them. And as long as where you go is somewhat orthodox, people in churches will go deep, deep. Well, we're gonna just gonna take this and what it means. I'm a little bit more simple than that. We're just gonna read it and we're gonna dive in now. So that's that's the introduction. The prophetic vision verses one through five. The prophetic vision verses one through five. It starts off with a man with a measuring line. Now, this picture of a measuring line has is, is been used before by God. Notice the question that Zechariah asks. What are you going to do? Well, the reason he asks that is the picture of a measuring line means one of two things. It's either something good or something bad. In, for instance, 2 Kings 21, listen to this. Description of the destruction of Israel. The Lord says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Well, that's not a very good measuring line. That, that's the measuring line of cutting something up into pieces. Right? The same, the same imagery is used in Amos 7.17. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line and you yourself shall die in an unclean land. So measuring lines can be biblically set up as something bad, but Ezekiel, the most recent prophet on the scene, who's who's written Daniel and Ezekiel would be right, right before Zechariah shows up. He has a vision of a measuring line. And in the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, going into excruciating detail, the Lord depicts the future glorious state Of the temple in the land. And he begins the vision with Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 2 to 3. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel. He set me down on the very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And as you keep reading, and we're not going to read all the eight chapters of Ezekiel, the final eight chapters. This is a glorious picture of rebuilding. And so I think Zechariah knows that. He knows, okay, measuring line, is this gonna be the dividing, cutting up measuring line or is this the measuring line of Ezekiel? He says, okay, what are you going to do? Well, the answer that comes back is very encouraging. To measure Jerusalem, to see its width and what is its height. And so what this is in the blank here is it's preparation to rebuild Jerusalem. And expand Jerusalem, preparation to rebuild and expand Jerusalem. I don't know if you know this, but the lot next to my house is, is a house is being built on it. And for a while, we'd heard rumors that, uh, that David was going to, the man building it's David Rowe, Harold's son was going to build but it wasn't until the day when we looked out the window and saw the surveyors now that, now they don't use measuring lines now it's all GPS and lasers but it's the same concept and you see a group of guys out there and they're looking through their sights and well cuz that's the first step in a building project isn't it it's the first step and so when we saw the guys out there with the metaphorical measuring line we knew this is the first and preparatory step to a building project. That's what Zechariah is seeing. All this talk is starting to happen. The, the initial steps, the preparations are being made for rebuilding and expanding Jerusalem. Well, there's no more explanation. What I want you to understand is this isn't a complicated vision. It's pretty straightforward. Notice how there's no more explanation of what this means. He understands what this means. If the Lord wanted us to understand this as a deep metaphor about how we measure our lives, I'd expect there'd be more exposition. Now, Zechariah understands what he sees. His question, is this for good or for bad? He gets his answer. The rest of the chapter, the rest of the chapter is simply unpacking the significance of blessing, how great it's going to be. That's the rest of the chapter. Because now we get the message from the angel. There's the angel who is with Zechariah. Behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and he said to him, run. Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So the first thing I want to observe here is run. This is, and here's the blank, urgent good news. It's as if the angel who's with Zechariah is, is being too casual for such good news. This news is too good. This news is too exciting. You ever get news that's too good? You can't wait? I've had a recent experience. <laughs> where I want to tell this God's blessing. And, okay. But I, you know how it feels when you've got good news. You want to run. You want to tell somebody. And this other angel, the unnamed angel, sort of corrects the first angel who's apparently just sort of walking too slowly. Run! Urgent good news. People are still living in Babylon, and God is about to do something so good for Jerusalem, and he's about to do something so bad for Babylon. You got to run. You got to tell them this is urgent. And the message is about Jerusalem's glorious future. Jerusalem's glorious future. Look at this. Look at the promises. It's lavish. It's bold. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. Let's just pause there. Which is to say the population will be so great, the prosperity so great, that Jerusalem's mighty walls, or once mighty walls, will no longer be able to contain it. It will overflow, it will expand. Because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. That, that's a lavish promise. And let me, let me make clear to you, everyone understands, well, except for one commentator. That nothing remotely like this, no, no. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah, you know what I'm talking Okay, that This has never happened. Israel has never had this type of prosperity since the time of Zechariah. So your choices are either, this is where premillennial comes from, we're living in the time before it happens. Sometime in the future, this will happen. Or this is all spiritually talking about the church. Those, those are your options. Because you can't credibly argue this happened. I, one guy, his name is Hensonberg, tried to say that this is just talking about the state under Nehemiah. Um, D- Dave Lample knows better. I'll, I'll read to you Nehemiah 11, 1 to 2, just to give you a comparison. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring out one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, while nine out of 10 remained in the other town. People didn't want to live in Jerusalem. At the end of Nehemiah, the leaders live in Jerusalem, because if you know, you're the leader, you kind of have to. Everyone else is like, there's a lottery to force people to live in Jerusalem. Now compare that with it shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. Yeah, there's no way. There's no way. So either this is talking about sometime future or this isn't talking about anything literal at all. I just got to read one more quote by by Charles Feinberg. He was a... uh, Jewish rabbi who became converted, and so knowing Hebrew, knowing the languages, he, he became a very um, powerful scholar, and he wrote a commentary, one of the more helpful commentaries in this book, and as he's talking about what people try to do with these passages, he says this, what baseless and unfounded hermeneutical alchemy, now hermeneutics is the art and principles of Bible interpretation. What baseless and unfounded hermeneutical alchemy is this which will take all the prophecies of judgment against Israel at their face value to be literally understood but will transmute into indistinctness any blessings or promise of future glory for the same people? Because the problem is God made curses and promises to Israel. If you go read Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, all you get is, hey, if you're good, this is what I'll do, and if you're bad, this is what I'll do, the blessings and the curse and without question, the curses were literally fulfilled. God said, if, if you're unfaithful, if you go after other gods, I'm going to besiege you. I'm going I'm to punish you. I'm going to scatter you among the nations. That's exactly what he did, literally. How then do we take the promises of blessing and say, well, that's spiritual. It, it's, it's akin to alchemy, transforming lead to gold, is what Feinberg's saying. But moving on, moving on, um, Jerusalem's glorious future. Now, you've got to focus on future. Because as I've said before, these are promises for a repentant, faithful Israel. Just as these initial blessings only came after Zechariah called the people to faithfulness and repentance. And then when they did, he just poured out blessings. We're going to find out in Zechariah 12.10 that it will not be until Israel looks upon the one whom they've pierced, and they get it, and it clicks, and they say, what have we done? And they become Christian these types of promises will be finally fulfilled. It's their future, future glory, the glorious future. Jesus, speaking of the current times in Luke 21, 24, says of Jerusalem, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led among captives among the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We're living in the time of the Gentiles. They began the deportation. Notice that we're, marking the dates by Gentile kings. And Jesus says, they're still in the time of the Gentiles. Yes, they're back in the land, but they're under the thumb of Rome. The time of the Gentiles. This is their future. This is their future. Notice then the Lord's presence in her. The Lord's presence in her. The Lord makes a promise about his presence. It'll do two things. The Lord's will be her defense. You know, they're not going to need walls. They're going to be so big, they're without walls. Well, walls are to make you safe. They won't need walls because the Lord will be a wall of fire around them. His presence will be that. This is hearkening back to the Exodus where when Israel was trapped against the, dead, the Red Sea before the Red Sea parted, the angel of the Lord in a cloud of fire held back the Egyptian armies. You can read about that in, in Exodus 14. The Lord will be their protection and the return of the glory of the Lord. I will be to her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now, keep your thumb here. Turn to Ezekiel 9. We've got to do one other quick, I promise it'll be quick aside. But you've got to get the import of this. Probably the most discouraging thing for the returned exiles, especially any of those who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple, the big difference between this temple they're trying to build and the temple that was was the Shekinah glory, the visible presence of the Lord dwelt in Solomon's temple. When it, when it fell upon the temple, it was so great that all the priests had to flee outside of it, and it remained and abided there. But Ezekiel 9 gives us in stages the departure of the glory. God, to the prophet Ezekiel, wanted to make it clear that when Nebuchadnezzar came and when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and took its vessels, he had not defeated the God of Israel. The God of Israel had already vacated the premises. The glory had departed. Ichabod, no glory. And I just want to track this quickly. In Ezekiel 9, starting in verse 3, now the word of the Lord, now the glory... Of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And then he talks some more. You've got to sort of track this then jump over to 10.4. So the glory goes from the Holy of Holies between the the covering cherubs to the threshold of the house. 10.4. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. From the... From the covering angels to the threshold. Now it's sort of moving into the court. Jump down to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went and the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord, the God of Israel, was over them. So we've gone from the Holy of Holies, the court, the east gate, And then our final destination is 1122. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So again, to to trace the path of the departure of the glory of the Lord, Holy of Holies, gate, the court, east gate, down the Kidron Valley, up to the Mount it on the east side of the city. Does anyone know what the mountain on the east side of the city is? This is the exact path in reverse that the Lord Jesus takes on the triumphal entry. When he goes directly down the Kidron Valley from Mount of Olives through the east gate to the temple to cleanse it, saying this is my father's house. The exact path in reverse. And here, Zechariah is promising that glory has, will return. I will be the glory in her midst. It'll be different than you expect. I will be the glory in your midst. Because remember, Haggai had promised the glory of the second temple would outstrip the glory of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple had the Shekinah glory, but only this temple would have the glory of the incarnate son of God saying, this is my father's house. The God in the flesh will come and take possession one day of this temple. I will be the glory in her midst. Back to Zechariah. And then, and it's unclear whether this is the Lord himself speaking or Zechariah overcome with passion speaking for the Lord. It amounts to the same thing. We get a final now application of this. We've been told, we've seen the vision. We've got a promise in the Lord God of what he's going to do. And now there's an application. This is the announcement to the people. And we'll move quickly. Four points. Point number one, verses six to seven, you have exhortation. The so what? Exhortation. I'll read it. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I've spread you abroad as the four wings of heaven declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Now, just a brief note. Babylon technically is to the southeast of Israel and Jerusalem, But its approach, Nebuchadnezzar's approach, as related in Jeremiah 1, 13 to 14, is from the north. So even though technically Babylon is to the south and the east, they're referred to as that nation in the north because that's where the armies came from. That's where the danger came from, the north. And the application is really simple. To the remaining thousands and millions of Jews that are still in Babylon, get out of there. Get out of there. Come. Come home. Come to Jerusalem. Flee. Flee to Israel. Next, in verses 8 to 9, we have the motivation. Why? Why should they do that? Well, for two reasons. The Lord is about to recompense Babylon, and because of the promises we've just heard. Because of how good it's going to be here, and because of how bad it's going to be there, get out of there. This is why it's urgent. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. They shall become a plunder for those who served them. Then they will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Now, you might think this is kind of odd. Hasn't Babylon already been defeated by the Medo-Persians? After all, it's not a Babylonian king, but a Persian king um, who is reigning now, Darius. So, haven't they already got their comeuppance? Well, yes and no. You see, when Cyrus came in and took possession of Babylon, the city of Babylon, it was a largely bloodless coup. The people welcomed them. And so Babylon wasn't smashed. And aside from some ruling officials and some small skirmishes, it was a relatively peaceful transition. Nothing of the bloodshed and the destruction and the punishment that was predicted by Jeremiah and Ezekiel had taken place. But it was going to. God hadn't forgotten his word. And here, even though Darius, the book tells you Darius the Mede, is ruling, God's not done with Babylon. Babylon not by a long shot. History tells us two years later in a series of three revolts Babylon where some areas of Babylon tried to revolt against Darius and he crushed them with force and cruelty. The fourth year of Darius' reign, Babylon was gonna get crushed. And the Lord in his great mercy and love for his people is, is warning and encouraging. He puts the carrot and the stick in front of them. I've got so much good plans for you. I've got so much blessing gonna pour out of you. I'm gonna blast your enemies. Get out of there. Come, come home. Come home. The exhortation. The mo- and, and notice in the motivation. I just love these little touches. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Now, now previously God has said he's very angry at the nations, but I want you to get this picture. We go to great lengths to protect our eyes, don't we? If you work with metal, you put protective goggles on. Why? Because our eyes are very, very precious to us. We're not worried about a piece of metal or something striking our cheek or our forehead, but we'll wear the protective goggles. If the sun's out, we'll cover our eyes. I want you to get this picture. The living God. How do you think he responds when somebody comes up to the living God and starts poking him in the eye? The Lord God says that Is how close his people are to him. That's how close Israel is to him. That when someone messes with them, they're messing with him. Now we're not Israel, but this heart of God for his people is seen equally in the new covenant. Just think of what did Jesus say to the Apostle Paul in Acts nine? Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? See how God identifies with his people? You mess with them, you mess with him. This is personal. This is intimate. This isn't just some faraway ruler who's governing things coldly. This is relational language. Or or Jesus in Matthew 25 talking about the judgment of the sheep and the goats, and he'll say, welcome into the kingdom. Why? I was thirsty. I was hungry. I was in prison. You came to visit me. Lord, when did we see you thirsty? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison and visit you? Assuredly, I tell you, as least as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. God loves his people personally, intimately, and the, those who would oppress them, those who would attack them, he cares. Now, we've seen that he, he's sovereign, and he will allow these things to happen, and if God is letting you go through a season of trial, please remember he is in control. It's not as though God's back there wringing his hands going, oh, oh. but also don't think he's cold and careless. This type of language, the language of the New Testament, shows us how much he identifies, how much he cares for his people. Messing with him, poking God in the apple of his eye. That is not a smart place to be. And that moves then in verses 10 to 12 to celebration. Celebration. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. The many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion of the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. This is the largest chunk, so I've broken it down into 3 subchunks, but it's explaining the future glories of the Messianic kingdom. And what I mean by Messianic kingdom is this. The Messiah will come. That's what Zechariah is going to say. The Messiah will come. And he will come and he will suffer and he will bring in a kingdom. Now the the mystery, what was hidden according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians to, to the Old Testament prophets is that those two events, the Messiah coming and suffering, being rejected, and the Messiah setting up a kingdom would be separated by a big gap. And so in many of the Old Testament prophecies, these things are presented as boom, boom. We're going to see that even here. In in Zechariah, your king comes on a donkey. Humble, lowly is he. That's that's quoted for the triumphal entry. In the next verse, he's striking down the nations. It's like two mountains that line up behind each other on the horizon and you don't see the, the huge valley in between. So all Zechariah is saying is, Messiah is coming and these are the things he will do. And then, there is some truth to the fact that according to Paul, because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, the Lord for a time has set them aside. The natural... Olive branches were cut off for a time, and and Gentile branches were grafted on. You keep reading Romans 9. You can go back and listen to Pastor Gary's sermons. Just go read Romans 9, 10, 11. Those branches are getting grafted back on. They didn't get thrown away. And so we are living in the time of the Gentiles. We're living in the church age where God is working with the church, where Israel is unfaithful, unbelieving, disciplined, That is not the final story. The Messiah, when he returns the second time, will set up a kingdom of rule. We get a glimpse of this here. Sing and rejoice, for I will come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Anyone know what Emmanuel means? God with us. I will come and I will dwell in your midst. I mean, think about this. When the Lord Jesus returns and fights his enemies and he is triumphant, then the living God will, and I don't say this tritely, have a street address. He will rule from David's throne in Jerusalem. You'll know where he is. You can GPS it, put on a map. In their midst, he will come. In their midst, he will dwell. And verse 11, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Lord will dwell in the mess of Jerusalem, a messianic worldwide kingdom and salvation. And this gets back to the the blessings that God and promises God made to Abraham. I mean, remember Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel's purpose and goal that they largely failed at will accomplish here. Notice that. It's not just a blessing for Israel. It's a blessing for all the nations. Many nations shall come and join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in their midst. Turn turn to the last chapter of Zechariah chapter 14 because we're going to get a much clearer picture of all of this. So if if this future prophecy is still kind of fuzzy, still kind of like, what? We're going to come back to this in greater detail. Um, Zechariah... um, 12 through 14 pictures this explicitly. But I'll just quickly, quickly point out to you. um, The Lord rouses himself in verse 3 We'll go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand to the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east. Jump down to verse nine. After the battle ends, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, The Lord will be one and his name, one. Jump to verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. So that's where we're going. We're going. This is literally gonna happen. Zechariah thinks it's literally gonna happen. He thinks Messiah will come back. There'll be a great battle. The kingdom will be ushered in with Israel in the place of prominence and many other nations worshiping the living God which really ties all the way back to Genesis 12 where God tells Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'll make a great nation of you and I'll bless all peoples through you. And so God is telling Israel, this plan is still on course. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. A worldwide messianic kingdom and salvation. And then again, in case, just in case they might think, okay, with all these other nations, maybe then, maybe now, Israel's gonna lose its, lose its privileged place. I mean, if now we're talking about multiple nations, does that mean that Israel is just a nation among the nations? Verse 12. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land. So even as many other nations come and join themselves to the Lord, and even as many other nations become God-worshippers, Christian. The Lord ratifies his choice and choosing of Israel and Jerusalem. By the way, verse 12 is the only reference in the Bible to the Holy Land. You hear that phrase, the Holy Land? Here it is. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem, which harkens back to Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more numerous than other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. I just love that. It's not because you are great and high and mighty that the Lord loves you. It's because he loves you. Why does the Lord love his church? Why does the Lord love his people? Why does the Lord love Israel? Because it's his nature to love. It's because of who he is. It's not because of who we are will again choose israel so even as many nations are brought in and this becomes a worldwide kingdom israel does not lose its identity israel does not lose its promises it does not lose its prestigious place then finally after celebration exaltation exaltation verse 13 as summary as a final word Final closing comment to what we've just read. And now Zechariah, if it's he who's speaking, this could just be all direct quotation of the Lord himself speaking, broadens the word from Israel. Originally back up in verse six, he's speaking to Israel. Flee, flee, come back to the land. Now, who's he talking to? All flesh. This news is so great. God's plan is so wondrous. The words reported here, have such global significance that the the message is broadened out. And in a doxology, bringing this to a crashing and climactic close, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And the picture is this. Remember, the nations are at ease. The report from the first vision that the riders comes back, the nations are at ease. God's people are afflicted, the nations are at ease. God's angry about that. And we hear about the horns, but we don't know when those craftsmen are coming to strike them down. but now we get word. The measuring line is going out. Things are afoot. And to make that and start clear, God is rousing himself. He said he's gonna return. He said he's gonna to come to his people. He's, he's getting up off his chair, as it were, right? that's the picture the Lord is rousing himself he's he's stirring himself up he's getting ready to act and we know he's getting ready to come down and be with his people in human flesh it's going to be about 400 years later Zechariah is the penultimate prophet of the Old Testament Malachi comes in a few years later with a final word so this is this is the close of Old Testament prophecy and This this word is God says he's gonna come be with his people. He's gonna dwell in their midst. They would never have expected, they could have never imagined how literally that would be fulfilled as God would come down in human flesh, send his son, literally take possession of that temple. And in light of that, our response is to worship, to be silent, to put our hand over our mouth and to praise him. I'm gonna call the worship team back up for our final song. I just wanna remind you All these blessings, all these blessings to God's people and all God's blessings to his people at all in general are all predicated on us being people of faith, people of contrition, people who, according to Psalm 51, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, I will not despise. All these blessings that God has promised for his people, the first word to them, was repent. God has promises for us Promises of grace, promises of comfort, promises of help and strength. But they're only offered to those people who are, who are lining themselves un, under him, who are not trusting in their own thoughts and their own ways, but who are, who are humbly coming to him as his sons and daughters. We're, we're to sing now the words of Psalm 51 and pray that the Lord would work in us that same spirit. Because, because we want him to fight for us and we want him to dwell with us and we want to be at peace with him. And so we're to sing Psalm 51. Bye.